Amen. Thank you, Christy. Ricky, I agree with you. If I had, uh, I couldn't have done what Christy did. That was, uh, she's a pro. She teaches music in school. Christy, I'd have fallen apart. So you did that with grace and poise, and that was good. So um, thank you. I invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. I'm preaching through the book of Revelation this summer, and uh, somebody's already asked me, are you going to get through it this summer? I don't know. Uh, we're only getting to the seventh church this morning, and so either we've got to extend the summer or we'll hold over for next year, or uh, I don't know, we'll just, I'll preach on Sunday, put it on the internet maybe, we, we could do that. Um, if you're not here, and you haven't been here yet for the other messages, they're, on, they're available on iTunes, you can certainly download and listen to them, um, but I invite you to follow along today as we look at the last of the seven churches used to travel full-time and speak to youth groups for about 10 years, did that, and so traveled especially all through the southeast and sometimes other places, but uh, I stopped at a restaurant in Birmingham, Alabama, and I remember it was right off this busy four-lane highway, turned up into a parking lot, but had to go up a hill to get to the restaurant, pulled up to a fence, and it was one of those black wrought iron fences that has the spikes on them, and I looked on the other side of the fence, and there's this cliff really back down to a ditch I don't know like three or four stories down so 30 or 40 feet to the ditch and then you're back out in the interstate or back out in this busy highway but one of the things that surprised me on the fence was a sign that said stay off the fence and I thought have they had a problem with people sitting on this fence or do they just mean keep your car off the fence because if you had gone through the fence you're in trouble you're back down into a ditch you know, 30 or 40 feet below into the highway. But as a preacher, of course, I saw that and thought, what a great illustration for the church. Stay off the fence. One of the things that's irritating about myself and about you at times are that sometimes we have our foot in one place and a foot in another place, and we're just kind of in the middle. And that's the church we're going to look at this morning, the church at Laodicea. And I want to say, I think of all the seven churches we've looked at, this one, is most like the church in America. That's not a good thing. And I'm going to talk about why I think that and maybe what we need to do to get out of that. But we've looked at the seven letters. And keep in mind, this is John. He has this, uh, uh, Jesus appears to him on the island of Patmos, this prison island where John has been banished. And here's what he was told. He was told, write down everything you see. So he's about to catch a glimpse into the future and into heaven. And he's to write down everything he sees, which is incredibly difficult. But then he was told to put it in a book and distribute it to the seven churches. And so the reason we get it is it was sent out to these seven churches and it was kind of a circle, kind of went up north first to Ephesus and then to the other churches and, and the books went down to finally into Laodicea. So let me read, start out by reading just the first part of this passage, beginning in verse 14, Revelation chapter 3. Verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth because you say I am rich and have become wealthy. And have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched 
and miserable and poor and blind and naked. First thing I want us to look at this morning is just the self-assessment of the church. One of the things that happens in our generation is if you're sick, don't raise your hand. I, I almost I'm tempted to get you to raise your hand. How, let's do it. How many of you have ever had a symptom? And instead of going to the hospital, the doctor, you went on the Internet. Okay, I've done that too. Uh, that's a scary thing, by the way. You could end up with all sorts of diseases. You know, because you're like, well, my throat's kind of hurt. I got lupus. You know, I mean, it's like, who knows? I mean, you go on the Internet and you start re researching like somebody started out with a sore throat, ended up having to have their foot amputated or something. And so it can scare you. Be careful going on the Internet and self-diagnosing. And yet, that's what this church did. We're going to look at their own self-diagnosis. Anybody been to the doctor lately? I've been to the doctor. I love it when the doctor comes in and says, well, how are you doing? And I'm like, that's kind of what I was here for. I wanted you to tell me how I'm doing, all right? I love it when I see my eye doctor out at, at a restaurant or something. I'll go up to him, and he doesn't get the joke. But I love going up saying, it's good to see you. He hadn't laughed yet. I don't know if he just thinks I'm not funny or it's just over his head. But I'm thinking, you're an eye doctor. It's good to see you. Doesn't that make sense? Let's look at the self-diagnosis of this church. Let's start by looking at just the town. It's Laodicea. And uh, this town, here's some things we know about the town. It, it was at a very strategic, critical crossroads of three main roads. In fact, I believe part of the reason that John was told to send these letters or this book really to the seven churches is most of them were at some strategic places where it would be easy to get the book not only from that church but out to the church and ultimately to us 2,000 years later so it was at a strategic crossroads but three things we know about the city and it's important to know this about the city because it's going to be brought up later first it was an incredibly wealthy city it was a banking center, a center of commerce. In fact, we know this about it. Cicero cashed checks there. We know that from history. We also know that in A.D. 60, an earthquake took place, and we've heard this about other churches, the other six churches. There's a couple of them destroyed by this same earthquake. They had to appeal to Rome for help. Well, what happens when you appeal to Rome for help? You become obligated to Rome. Laodicea was able to rebuild based on the fact they had enough wealth within the city of Laodicea to rebuild. And so rebuilding in A.D. 60 and beyond, it became an even richer city. And it, it had all the modern conveniences of that day. And so it was a city of wealth. It was also very famous for its black wool. And they distributed this black wool all, all over the region to make clothes and to weave that wool into carpets. And the third thing is it was a center of a medical school. In fact, the symbol that you'll see sometimes, especially in the military for medical branches of the military, is that staff with the snake. That was the symbol of the medical school and the medical uh, hospital in Laodicea. So it's lasted for that long. So three things, incredibly wealthy, incredibly blessed with this black wool that was used for clothing and carpets, and third, medical school. Now, why is that important? You'll find out later but here's what jesus says he starts out by saying really giving himself a platform for why he's saying what he's saying he says first of all the amen the faithful and true witness 
The amen basically means so be it. It means what I'm about to say is firm and trustworthy. You can rely on it. When we offer a prayer and we say amen, what we're basically saying is that's the truth and so be it. So Jesus starts off by saying that's me. I'm the amen. I'm the faithful and true witness. You can rely on what Jesus is about to say. He also says I'm the beginning of creation. What does he mean by that? Does it mean that he was the first thing created? No. He's God. He has always existed. He's always been. So what does it mean? It meant that he was there at the beginning. It was because of him and through him that everything was created. In fact, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, listen. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So that's the platform of what Jesus is about to say. And he says, here's what I say about this church. He says, you have said, I am rich, literally abounding with wealth. I'm rich. The church, the city, for the church itself, I'm rich. And I have become wealthy. They have become wealthy through their resources that they had earned, that they had accumulated, they had acquired. They were wealthy. You know what will happen with wealth? Wealth often gives a false sense of security. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But here's the most damaging thing. Here's the scariest thing the church says. Because I'm rich, because I've become wealthy, I have need of nothing. Can you imagine that? That was basically the attitude of the city, but the attitude of the city had crept into the church. And here's what the church is saying. I have need of nothing. Now, that's the scary thing that I see at the church in America. I had the opportunity to go to the former Soviet Union and speak. It was, it was actually a festival of teenagers, a, a youth, um, outdoor youth festival that I spoke at. And I had an interpreter. His name was Nikolai. More on that I can talk later about Nikolai. But Nikolai, excuse me, Nikolai wasn't my interpreter. He was the guy I was talking to. My, my interpreter's name was Misha. And so Misha was interpreting and one of the things I had him do, I said, they would pray these prayers. Well, I didn't understand Russian. And so I'm asking him, I said, interpret their prayer for me. And the majority of their prayer was about how thankful they were to God. Oh, God, you have given us so much. And in my little Western mind, I'm looking and thinking, you have nothing. My interpreter had two pairs of pants. He had a pair of jeans and a pair of corduroy. It was July. It was blazing hot. He would wear those corduroy. He didn't even have a toothbrush. He would literally use a pair of scissors to clean his teeth at night. And I thought, wow, they have nothing. And I saw literally utter poverty among, especially the Christians that I met in Russia. And yet, they were so thankful. And what I thought is, man, in America, we'd be complaining, we'd be grumbling, we'd be griping. We have everything and we're miserable. These people have nothing, and they're thankful and happy. In fact, when he says you have need of nothing, you think you're rich, and ultimately he's going to say, you're, really, you're poor. Remember the other church that he speaks about, and he says, you, you think you're poor, and they were. In the terms of the world's possessions, they were poor. And yet, parenthetically, Jesus says, but you're really rich. Spiritually, you're rich. 
Well, he's saying the exact opposite to the church in Laodicea. He's saying physically, in the terms of the world stuff, you've got it all. The only problem is spiritually, you're needy and don't even know it. Here's the scary thing. The self-satisfied Christian has far too high an opinion of himself. And that's the indictment on the church. And so this is a word to a church, and I don't want us to lose sight of that, but I want you to ask yourself this question today. Make it personal. How needy am I for God? Am I really dependent on God, or am I kind of doing the Christian life on my own? Because, folks, there will come a day when doing it on your own, you'll finally realize it doesn't work. You can be religious on your own, but you will not be a follower of Christ in your own strength and power. How does a church, my my question this week is I've studied this passage, how do you get in this position? In fact, I'll just kind of tell you, as as I was studying this week and reading, commentators disagree. Here's one of the questions asked of commentators. Were there Christians in the church? Or was this just a church that got established and there weren't even any believers in it? And commentators have disagreed on that. I happen to believe there were believers in the church. So how is it that you can be a church and you'll find out later, Jesus isn't even showing up there anymore. He's actually knocking on the door trying to get in. How does that happen? Well, I could give you a longer list, but I've given you, I've just come up with four that I've written this week. They're not on the screen. You've got to pay attention. One way a church gets in that position is, and I think this church in Laodicea was doing that, is they were living on past accomplishments. They were real proud of what they had accomplished. And here's what happens in a church like that. You spend more time focusing on where you've been instead of where you're going. Second thing, they were real satisfied with the way things are. Just maintain the status quo. Hey, Our offerings are up. We must be doing something right. Or look how many people are coming. Listen, the offering plate nor attendance is a real good indication of life in the church. In fact, what does the Bible say about the end days? The Bible says at the end of time, there are going to be people that will assemble together just to have their ears tickled. So watch out for judging churches either on how much they raising finances or how many people actually attend another way a church gets in position of just being complacent is they lose their intimacy with christ they're satisfied with just being religious just going through the motions and last they lose a passion for reaching and discipling others i call this the us for and no more mentality you know, there's some people who actually believe that. They, they really just like the church being kind of small. I, church, I served a church in Texas when I was in seminary. And we were talking about an outreach program. We were going to go into the community and just knock on doors and meet people, invite them to church. We literally had one of the leaders of the church stand up in the church and said this. My wife and I joined this church because it was a small country church, and that's the way we want to keep it. I thought, well, bless your heart. By the way, when I say bless your heart, it's not a good thing. I thought, you're kidding me. There's really people with that kind of attitude? And yes, there are. There's some people that have no passion for reaching anybody, have no passion for seeing anybody grow in the faith. Let's just do business as usual. And apparently that's what was happening in Laodicea. By the way, the church I served in Texas now has multiple campuses. Thousands of people worship there on Saturdays and Sundays over the weekend. 
little church started out of Highland Village, Texas. And now God's doing great things through it. So apparently that leader in the church didn't get his way, and I'm glad of it. So the question is, were there Christians in the church, or was it all lost people? Here's the scary thing. It was hard to tell. If, if you kind of wake up in church one day and you're going, you know, I can't really tell who the Christians are and who the lost people are. What have we done? We've just tried to make lost people comfortable. And in the process, we've gotten comfortable, and there's no real difference between the two. Be careful when you see that coming. Well, more importantly then, what was the Jesus assessment? We know what the church thought of themselves. They thought, we're doing it well. You know, this is the only church that you can't really find any kind of commendation for Jesus, from Jesus. Most of the churches, he said, I know your deeds, and he told them some good things. And then he said, but I got this against you. In fact, two churches, all he really had was commendation, nothing negative. This one, no commendation, it's all negative. In fact, it's scary. When he says, I know your deeds, here's what Jesus is saying. I've been watching you. I know what goes on there. I know your comings and goings. I know what you're about. It's not hidden from me. And then he says, you're neither cold nor hot. Now, scholars differ on this. What does this mean? Some scholars take it to mean it's simply talking about their spiritual fervency. You're not hot for the things of God. You're not indifferent to the things. Or you're not against the things of God. You're just kind of indifferent. And he calls them lukewarm. Other scholars point to the fact that in this area, there was a place called the Hierapolis that had warm springs. And it, at the warm springs was where you would go for physical healing. You would soak in the warm springs and it would help ailments in your body. Then there was Colossae, not far away, that had cool springs. And it was refreshing. So some scholars look and say, what Jesus is saying is, I wish when people came to your church, they either got physical comfort of healing because of the warmth of your fellowship, or you were refreshing to them because of the cool drink of water that they get when they come here. In any case, here's what Jesus is saying. You're neither. And I think both apply. You're not helping heal people and you're not helping refresh people. You're not fervent for the things of God. You're not boiling, which I wish you were. You're not cold either. You're not saying to people, oh, we don't believe in God. What are you? You're lukewarm. Here's what we do know about the city or the church, the city at Laodicea. Their water had to be brought in by an aqueduct about six miles away. It was one of these warm springs. And so their water came. Well, by the time it got to the city of Laodicea, it wasn't hot anymore. But it also hadn't been in the aqueduct long enough to cool off, so it wasn't refreshing either. And so Jesus says, I want to spit you out of my mouth. In fact, literally the word is vomit. You ever took a drink of something that about made you sick? You ever gotten milk that was past the expiration date? <laughs> One of the rules at my house is if you pull something out of the refrigerator and ask this question, I wonder if this is still good. That's a good opportunity right there to throw it away, pour it out. Because I've taken a big drink before of just sour milk. And that's kind of the picture I get of what Jesus is saying here. It makes me sick. What's Jesus saying to the church? He's saying you're good for nothing, really. You're not fervent for me. You're not cold. And so some of the scholars say, well, why would he say I'd rather you be hot or cold? Well, if Jesus is speaking about the water illustration, then I understand that. Cold would be refreshing. If he's speaking about their spiritual fervency, it would be better to not claim to be a believer. So you're not leading anybody astray. 
than to be where you are saying, oh yeah, we know God, we're having worship services. And when people come into the worship service, all they're getting is status quo. All they're getting is lukewarmness. Nobody's hot for God. And nobody's even cold at this point. You're just kind of on the fence. And the amazing thing is, a church can exist like that, some for generations. And you kind of wonder, I know God left, but when did he leave? And so Jesus' assessment of the church was not good. In fact, he gets a little bit more specific. They had no clue about their spiritual condition. They didn't know their true position. And he tells them, you don't know. In fact, the word he uses for know could also be translated see. You just need to take a look around, church. You don't know. And there's five things he says. You think you're rich. And you think you have need of nothing. The truth about you is you're wretched and miserable. The word wretched literally means afflicted. Miserable means pitiful. In fact, the word doesn't mean you're worthy of pity. It just means you're pitiful. And then he gives three things. He says, you're poor. Now, what did we know about the city at Laodicea and the church apparently? They were rich financially. But he said, the truth about you is you're poor. In fact, the word he uses is word for being a beggar. You really are cringing just needing somebody to come give you a morsel. And you don't even know it. You're spiritually blind. Someone said there's none so blind as those who will not see. That was the church at Laodicea. They were blind. They were looking at the world and thinking they were seeing, but the truth of the matter is they weren't seeing their true condition. They're blind. And then he says, you're naked. What do we know about the city at Laodicea? They were famous for their black wool. They probably wore the finest clothes that money could buy. The truth of the matter, though, is they were naked. Kind of like Hans Christian Andersen's story of the emperor's new clothes. They had bought the lie that they were doing well. And the truth of the matter is they're poor, blind, and naked. Well, that's Jesus' assessment. I love the fact that in all seven churches, or five of the seven, that he had something against them. He gives an invitation. And folks, sometimes the word repent sounds scary, but it's really good news. Because what it means is, Jesus hasn't wiped you off the planet. He's given you an opportunity to change, to turn, to repent. And so here's the invitation. Let's pick up reading in verse 18 and following. Because this is true about the church, he says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So what does Jesus say? What does he say to a church that's poor, blind, and naked? He said, you need to come to Jesus. 
You need to come to me. And you need to buy from me gold that's been refined by fire so that you may become wealthy. Listen, you can't become something you already are. The church thought they were wealthy, right? Jesus is saying, no. You need to quit going to the first bank of Laodicea and taking out those coins with somebody else's face on it. That's not what makes you wealthy. You need to come to me because right now, spiritually, you're poor. And you need to buy gold refined by fire. And you need to buy white garments to clothe your nakedness. Again, Jesus is hitting them at the three things they thought they were the strongest in. So that the shame of your nakedness would not be revealed. The ultimate shame of that day would be to be stripped of your garments. In fact, in the Old Testament, it was a sign of judgment. Probably the closest thing we would see of that today is somebody that's being dishonorably discharged from the military to have somebody come up and rip your stripes off your shoulder, to take your rank away. In the Old Testament, they would simply do that by ripping the robe off your back. It was an indication of shame. It was an indication of the judgment of God. And so Jesus says, you need to come to me and buy white garments. And last, to buy an ISAB. The medical university or the medical school, the hospital in Laodicea was famous for this ointment that people traveled for miles to get and they shipped all over the region. And Jesus hit them right at where they thought they were strong and said, you're blind. You need to get some ointment, some ISAB from me so that you can see. Now think about the church in America. Not necessarily your church, but maybe your church. Think about you personally. One of the areas where we're really going to struggle is where we think we're strong, where we think we don't need Jesus. We've bought the lie of the enemy. That, hey, you've got that area under control. Listen, as long as you're the one keeping it under control, it's not under control. It's not a good thing. And then Jesus says something that is quoted in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and I want you to really get this today. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. I think at times we hear the word reproof and discipline and think, well, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't have love involved with it. Yes, it does. The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is apathy. For God to look at a church like this and do nothing would not be an indication of his love. In fact, in Hebrews, let me start with Proverbs. Proverbs 3.12 says this, For whom the Lord loves, he reproves. Even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. Then Hebrews 12, 11, great passage in Hebrews 12, but just one verse. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. One of the things I learned as a parent reading parenting books, there's a big difference in discipline and punishment. I used to use those words interchangeably. They're really not interchangeable. Discipline has a future hope in mind. Discipline means I'm going to take you from where you are and train you so that you'll be better tomorrow. Punishment is it's over. I'm going to punish you means there's no hope for the future. The ultimate punishment is hell. That's punishment. That's not discipline. Hell isn't something you get over. And so when Jesus says, those whom I love, one of the ways you know that I love you is that I will reprove you and discipline you. Now, if you've ever thought, man, I just wish you didn't love me so much. <laughs> no, I want you to hear it. It's a good thing when Jesus disciplines you. Why? Because it means you're one of his children, and it means that he loves you too much to leave you the way you are. 
to those whom I love, I reprove, literally admonish, and I discipline. So what should their response be? Therefore, be zealous and repent. What does repent mean? It means to turn. It means to have a change of mind or a change of direction. And what he's saying to this church is, you're going the wrong way. And here's where it gets personal. And I'll close. He says to the church, I'm standing at the door knocking. And the word that he uses doesn't mean that he just came and knocked one, one time. Have you ever been to somebody's house and you knew they were there? You knocked and nobody came to the door? What do you do? You, no, I don't. I leave. <laughs> I mean, I'll ring the doorbell. I'll knock a couple times. It really bugs me when I ring the doorbell and I can't tell if it's ringing or not. You know, I'm like, I, don't, I think this thing's broke. So then I start knocking on the door and people are in there saying, if he would just go away. Maybe none of you have ever experienced that. Maybe I'm the one that people are like, oh, it's Robert coming. Go high. Turn the lights off. But here's what the word says. It means he's continuing. I'm knocking. And the picture you've got to see is he's not inside the church. He's outside. They're having church. They're taking up offerings. People are joining. It looks good. They're real religious. And Jesus says, I have no part of it, but I'd like to. But here's where it gets personal. I'm knocking, and I'm continuing to knock. If anybody hears my voice, and I love that, not just to hear the rap. You don't just hear me rapping on the door, but you hear my voice. If anyone will open the door. And this is where it gets personal because it's not just the whole church has got to vote on this. Now, we use this verse in evangelism, and we've kind of said, you know, Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart. That's not what the verse says. The verse is written to a church, and he's knocking on the door of the church that is lukewarm and nauseating. But he says, if anyone, if one person will open the door, I'll come in and dine with that person. And the word that he uses for dine was the evening meal. And it was the meal that was the most important meal of the day. It was the meal that you didn't rush through. You didn't have fast food at this meal. It meant you fellowshiped with each other. The word indicates intimacy. Jesus says, hey, I'm knocking. If you'd open the door, I'll come in and have an intimate fellowship with you. Folks, that's good news. So as I close this morning, it's personal. Are you hearing Jesus knock? And maybe it's not back home at a church, but maybe it's your life that Jesus is saying, you used to be fervent for the things of God, and you've just gotten used to business as usual. And I really want you to have a passion for me like you used to. Or maybe he's saying to some of you, you don't know me. And I'm really trying to get your attention because I'm drawing you to myself. And here's the cool thing. When we say yes to Jesus, we begin a relationship of intimacy. In fact, he says, to him who overcomes, I'll grant to sit down on the throne with me. An in, a picture of intimacy even in heaven. What a great picture of our Savior. Bow with, bow with me if you would. Just between you and God, take a moment and allow God to speak to your heart. As perhaps he's been doing during the service. If you recognize this morning, either that you don't know God, 
or that you've just really become comfortable in the things of God and you really, your life right now just kind of looks lukewarm. Do something about it. Repent, turn. Restore that intimacy that, that Jesus wants in your life. Ask Him to change. Let's pray together. Father, God, what a, an awful word to the church. God, by all indications, the church in Laodicea, in fact, the church in that area didn't repent, at least over the long haul. And yet, God, it's a word that's come to us. And so, Lord, where we need to be convicted this morning, would you convict us? And would we respond personally to your invitation toward intimacy? Thank you for that kind of relationship. What a difference that would make in the church in America if the membership of the church would become dissatisfied with the things of business as usual and fervently desire, passionately desire an intimate walk with you. Lord, we love you in Christ's name.